I'm Dr. Max Pemberton, a doctor and Daily Mail columnist, and this is part one of a special three-part podcast from Mail Plus Health, where I speak to Dr. Richard Viney, consultant urologist at Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. So over the three podcasts, we're doing sort of all things urological. So can you explain what, what actually is urology? Because it's different, isn't it? I remember at medical school getting confused with neurology. So a subtle difference. Uh, it is subtle, but it couldn't be any more different, of course. <laughs> neurology is sort of above the shoulders. Urology is largely below the waist. Um, we basically, as a specialty, handle anything from the top of the kidney all the way down to the tip of the penis in the male and everything in between. So that's the kidneys, the ureters, bladder, prostate in the men, urethra, that's the tube to the outside world, penis in men, and uh, testicles. And every illness that's associated with those structures, we look after. So but you also do women as well, is that, is that right? Because wh- wh- where's the line between gynaecology, which is like sort of women's uh, health, and, and, and urology, or do you just do men? I don't know, it's, it's so uh, women have kidneys and ureters as well, and bladders, so we look after those. Uh, but the uh, the female genital tract, so that's sort of uterus, uh, ovaries, vagina, vulva, um, clitoris, that's all uh, belongs to the uh, gynecologist. The bladder's a little bit of a, a grey area, so you will find gynecologists who have some urological training and they're called urogyne specialists. Um, and same is true in urology. So you'll have urologists who deal with, say, female incontinence, which is quite a specialised area. So, you know, there's some, there's, there is some blurring around the margins. So this kind of first week, we're going to do prostates. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, before we get into the questions, because we obviously we had a lot of, a lot of questions on the, on the prostate. Can you explain actually what it is? Because I think probably a lot of people, they know they've got one. They probably know that it's slightly awkward or embarrassing examination um, associated with it. Um, but I think people don't necessarily know really where it is or really what actually it specifically does. So the prostate's a bit like the third testicle. Um, it's uh, sited at the base of the bladder and the two testicles, the tubes that drain those testicles, the vas deferens drain into the back of the prostate. And between the three structures, they produce your ejaculate. The, 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 the prostate produces about 40% the testicles, the, the other 60%. And the prostate is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, kind of a curious gland because it doesn't really start to grow until you reach puberty as a male. And between 25 and 40, it remains relatively sedentary. And then after the age of 40, it starts to grow in most men at various rates. And it's very, it's almost unique in, in organs in any mammalian species that continues to grow in later years. Most other things tend to atrophy and shrink away. And depending on how much it grows, depends on how much of a, a, a nuisance it can come to the, the, the owner. Its position at the base of the bladder um, means that it, will, it, it can interfere with the flow of urine from the bladder to the outside world. And so as it grows, the male may notice a variety of symptoms with regards to the flow of urine. And over time, as the bladder is trying its hardest to deal with this obstructing prostate, the bladder starts to play up itself and the patient starts to notice a bunch of what we call storage symptoms. So frequency and urgency and, and things like that. So, so it's, not, it's, it's not in itself related in, to the bladder or urine it's just it's just that where it is anatomically just got where it is in the body means that it affects or can affect your urine because i think it's yeah. sometimes confusion that somehow it makes urine or something but it doesn't do that does it, it no it doesn't it's um it, it's located where it is because of course the genital tract and the urinary tract share the same hose as it were to sort of uh, access the the outside world and the prostate sits at that junction between the genital tract coming into the urinary tract 
So it, produ- it, it will produce material that goes into the urethra, the prostatic secretion, but that's at a time of ejaculation. Not at any point is it involved with urination, but it's just its presence there, it just gets in the way. And it's and only men have one, don't they? The w- women don't even have a vestige of one, do they? Um, this is a difficult topic, of course, as, uh, as, 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 as we, we move forward with gender identity and what have you. But yes, in X, Y males, yes, that's where you'll find the prostate. Okay, so the first question. I have started waking up three times a night needing the loo. It's very frustrating, and my wife is nagging me to go to the doctors in case it's prostate cancer. I'm 55, and I think she is overreacting. Well, it's interesting because nighttime voiding is one of the most nuisance symptoms that, that, a, that a patient can experience, not only for their personal experience, but also for their partner. And going to the toilet a lot at night is actually quite a common problem and it can be related to a variety of different uh, causes and often more than one cause at the same time. The first thing I'd be interested in knowing is whether the patient's also going a lot during the day, whether this represents genuine uh, frequency of urine or whether it's just purely a nighttime issue. If it's something that's going on all day and night, then questions need to be asked about whether the patient may have, for instance, early type 2 diabetes. And so we need to explore that with the patient. And once explored and ruled out, the question is whether the patient is developing what we call an overactive bladder. So the bladder is not doing its role as a storage organ particularly effectively. And that in itself would need um, investigating. So bladders become overactive for a variety of reasons. But in men, it most commonly becomes overactive because it's having to work so hard against an obstructing prostate. If the symptoms are simply nighttime in origin, then I'd be interested about other things. This, is start, this starts to look more like nocturnal polyuria, where the gentleman's putting out more urine at night than perhaps he should. And so, he, so he, nocturnal polyuria, so that would just, I mean, that sounds, it's, that sounds a very nice sort of phrase, but I suppose breaking it down, it just means you're going to the toilet a lot at night. Yes. Yeah. And that may be, and that's where we do uh, some work with the patient with fluid volume diaries, working out what's going in and what's coming out. And it might be that they're not actually passing a great deal extra urine at night. It may be they're getting up three times, maybe only avoiding 100, 150 mils each time. And then it begs the question, maybe their sleep is being disturbed. Maybe there may be other issues like um, if they're a bit overweight, they may have uh, issues with um, snoring and stuff that's waking them up at night. And when you wake up most adults over the age of about 30, as part of their drifting off routine, they'll go and empty their bladder, whether it needs emptying or not. So the question is whether the patient's waking up thinking, oh my God, I need a wee i.e. the bladder's driving this, or whether they're waking up for other reasons and then emptying their bladder as part of the process of going back to sleep. So they could just be stressed or depressed or something like that, for example, they could have you know, other sorts of things that are, are motivating them to wake up. And then just as a habit, they're going to the toilet. So it's not actually a kind of mechanical, physical thing necessarily that's driving, no. having to wake up and then having to go to the toilet. It could just be a consequence or you know, kind of something coming out of them having to wake up anyway or waking up anyway. Right. And it may be, as you say, stress or just lifestyle related. They may be having a little more alcohol perhaps just before they go to sleep. And alcohol is quite a powerful diuretic as well as bringing the volume of the drink that you're taking. The alcohol on top of that will cause the kidneys to drive out even more water. So you might find they're peeing a lot more through the night, which is why they are genuinely getting up more frequently. But it it can be explained away by their behavior in the hours before they go to sleep. And the question for the patient then is, are you prepared to modify your lifestyle to get a better night's sleep or not? Um, and that, that's a conversation for the patient to have with himself. So, so putting aside all of these, 
these other kind of factors that may be there that sounds like you know this is I suppose the job of the urologist or the G even the GP to kind yeah. of like tease all this apart and find out in the history what this might be I suppose what the question or what the I think the person who's asking this question is or maybe what his wife is kind of getting at is is this cancer and and or what else could it be and I suppose then that brings us on to this thing this this benign prostatic hypertrophy so can, sure. can we talk about that a bit can you explain yeah so so the wife probably is overacting a little bit. And ironically, if any of the cancer you'd need to be worried about in this setting, it's actually bladder cancer rather than prostate cancer because bladder cancer itself is a disease process which will often cause frequency and urgency as, as the bladder becomes irritable because of early changes in the lining. Early prostate cancer rarely causes significant urinary symptoms. The nature of the disease, it grows in the, in the, in the prostate, often quite peripherally in the prostate, and the prostate can, can grow out rather than growing in. And so... The effect that, that, uh, that's, that's been had on the urinary tract by prostatic diseases is more commonly due to benign prostatic uh, overgrowth rather than prostatic cancer. The reality is, though, is prostate cancer is very common. So one in six, one in seven uh, males ultimately can expect a prostate cancer diagnosis in their lifetime. So a lot of patients who go in for BPH investigations with a urologist will come out with a prostate cancer diagnosis that they weren't necessarily expecting to get. So you can't say no to the wife, this isn't prostate cancer, but if he has prostate cancer, it's probably coincidental rather than driving these particular symptoms. Um, as you rightly say, this is more likely a consequence in part of benign prostatic hypertrophy or benign prostatic enlargement, depending on which kind of uh, definition you prefer to use. And then, so, so, so what is that? Can you explain then? So, because so I suppose people might be reassured by the word benign, mm -hmm. because I think we tend to understand that the word benign is you know, not cancer. Mm -hmm. So, so it's it's benign prostatic hypertrophy. What does that word hypertrophy actually mean? Just it just means excessive growth. But excessive growth is a concern because, of course, people think, well, hang on, that's cancer, isn't it? So there's uh, excessive pathological growth where the, the the growth and division of cells is driven by a loss of control of normal division, cell division processes. Whereas in BPH, this is, this is normal uh, designed, built-in uh, prostatic growth. So the body's doing this on purpose. It's driven by testosterone. Why it's doing it, we don't know. There's no obvious evolutionary advantage to men to pick up BPH. But like a lot of evolution, this isn't necessarily a negative thing. So having BPH in your 60s doesn't necessarily interfere with your fertility uh, in, in early life and the quality of your offspring. Um, and you never know when we have the next big pandemic, it might be gentlemen with BPH are preserved. And so it may yet ultimately have an advantage that only time will tell. But right now, there's no reason for it to be in the community. And if, um, if you do have it, what, what, are, what are the options? Like, what do you do with it? Is there medication you can take to make this, that prostate shrink back down again? Well, the question has to be whether it's causing nuisance or trouble at all. So you have some gentlemen who have huge prostates and no, no symptoms at all. You have other gentlemen who have actually quite small prostates who have horrendous urinary symptoms. So size isn't everything, as we all know. But there's not a great deal they can do in regard to lifestyle. Um, it, it's, it's mostly a genetic issue. Uh, we're not familiar with many environmental triggers for this as it stands. And ultimately, if they are getting symptoms, uh, the question is whether they wish to then explore medication. A lot of our patients present with symptoms and just want reassurance that it's not cancer and once reassured a lot of those symptoms I'll, I'll just put up with and just understand that that's part of getting older but for some others you know it's devastating for their lifestyle or their employment or what have you and they need treatment and again you might find one patient's going to the toilet four times at night and doesn't think anything of it you might find another person going up twice at night 
and it's the end of their world. So it's very uh, specific to the individual. And treatment runs along a number of lines, really. There's the treatment aimed at, uh, so the prostate's basically like a sponge covered in muscle. And the muscle there is designed to squeeze that sponge at the time of ejaculate. So ejaculation, so all the fluid comes out of the prostate and it gives a bit of oomph to the, the material. If you can relax that muscle, then it sort of opens the prostate up and makes it easier for urine to run through the middle of it. And that's that first type of prostate treatment is called the, the prostate relaxer or an alpha blocker. It's a very common first line treatment. If the prostate really is enlarged, then there is a second medicine we can use. It will shrink the prostate and shrink it considerably, but it takes a while to work, three to six months. And those are the prostate shrinkers called finasteride. Now, what we know is if you'd have no treatment and you've got symptoms, about 20% of men will find their symptoms get worse over a period of about six years. And this comes from a, from a, from a fantastic study that was done a while back. That study also then looked at patients taking the one medicine, the, 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 the relaxer or the shrinker alone, or taking the two in combination. And it found that if you took the two in combination, you can reduce that risk of 20% down to about 5%. If you took each drug in isolation, it reduced it from 20% down to 10%. So again, you've got to ask the patient, do you want to, you know, you've got these symptoms, there's a 20% chance of progressing. Do you want a lifetime of medication, which will reduce that risk from 20% to 5%? That's down to the patient and the patient's choice, really. And are there surgical options as well? And there are always surgical options. So we tend to go with medication first. And there's a little bit of a school of thought that, you know, that by medicating the, 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 the prostate, what you are doing is improving things, but not correcting things. So the bladder is under less stress, but it's still under some stress. It's still obstructed and behaving in that way. And consequently, over time, probably getting damaged by this. So the strong surgical advocates would turn around and say, ah, we should be operating on these patients earlier to protect and preserve the bladder. But the operation, there's a number of operations now, but invariably go, involves going down the pipe and scraping prostate out. Um, and that is not without its own risks and problems in its own right. As a consequence, they've looked for other softer options for the prostate, and they've come up with a couple of interesting ones, one uh, called Eurolift, where we put in a couple of almost like treasury tag type devices that pull up and pull out the, the lobes, these, these lumps of prostate, and pull them out a bit like heavy curtains and having tie backs and pulling them open. It allows it makes it much easier for the urine to flow through. And that's a day case procedure in the local anesthetic. There's another one where we inject steam into the prostate. And what the steam does is it kills the prostate cells. And over time, those cells die and the prostate sort of collapses down as, as the scarring process. And that's called resin. Um, and they've looked at interfering with the blood supply into the prostate uh, called prostatic embolization, which can play a role in some patients. But we still tend to mostly fall back to the good old-fashioned scraping operation because it is really effective. There's no doubt about it. And that's called, and that one's called, is it T-U-R-P? Yeah, transurethral, that's down the pipe, resection of prostate. Yeah. Okay, so it sounds like, you know, this, even though it's very, it's very common, this benign prostatic hypertrophy, BPH, um, that actually there's lots and lots of different options. Completely. But there's always that chance that there may be other disease processes masquerading as BPH, it is worth getting it checked out. Sure. And then whether you wish to pursue those options is down to you, but at least we as the specialists can rule out other stuff that might be a little bit more uh, worrying. So uh, the next question, what are your thoughts about PSA tests? A friend of mine has had one done and says, I should too for peace of mind. I'm 60, I'm fit and I'm healthy. God, now this is very controversial, isn't it? It's a very sort of complex area of medicine. So first of all, so can you just explain what actually is the PSA test? What is that? So PSA is a protein, uh, prostate-specific antigen. So it's a protein that's only produced by the prostate, pretty much. 
and it's produced in the bucket load in the ejaculate. That's where it's supposed to be. And it keeps the ejaculate uh, liquid in the male and then turns it sticky when it lands in the female for about 40 minutes and then allows it to liquefy again to, to come away. Um, so it's quite an important protein in that setting. A little bit, and we're talking tiny quantities, will leak into the blood. And that's what we look for in the blood test. And any disease process going on in the prostate can change the levels of that protein in the blood. And of course, the one everyone latches onto is prostate cancer. But actually, the larger the prostate, the more PSA you're going to see in the blood. Infection, inflammation, small stones in the prostate, recent ejaculation, recent rectal examination, all these things confound the blood test. So it, it's not without its, uh, its issues as far as a cancer test goes. But it's as yet still the best we have. And uh, you're right, it's very controversial as to whether we should be doing this. And there's a huge study. There's two huge studies. One went on in America, one still going on in Europe. The American study ultimately failed because those patients who were not being offered PSA screening were getting PSA screened uh, separately because there's quite a lot of pressure in America to have PSA testing. They advertise it on the, on the roadsides and stuff, largely because that's how the urologists make their money. Here in the UK, we get paid anyway, regardless of whether we're dragging patients in or not. So we tend to have a little more of a, a, a sort of evidence base to the way we practice. And we don't just put men through this process so we can uh, milk them for money. Maybe I'm being a bit unfair on my American colleagues. It's interesting, but, actually. I've, I've also I've been reading about this quite a lot sort of in the medical press you know, over the years. And, and it's, it is interesting how a different healthcare system can, can motivate or kind of incentivize um, an entirely different way of approaching a problem. Um, and so in America, as you say, it's sort of, there's a real pressure because people go to the urologist and they say, well, you know, I want this test in case to see if I've got cancer. And as a urologist, you know, why would you, if you're being paid per test, as it were, or kind of, yeah. you know, why, why would you turn around and say, well, actually, let's have a think about it. And we might find, you know, it might come back positive and, and it might actually not be anything, but we've then we're going to have to investigate it to be very costly. You know, for, for if you're being paid, you're going to yeah. quite happily go with that. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's one of the, that's the biggest pitfall of, of private healthcare is that, you know, can you, can you genuinely be confident that your doctor is not just milking the system a little bit? It's a bit like taking your car to the garage for service and suddenly you've got a whole list of stuff that needs doing. Now, do, does it need doing or not? You don't know. You're, so you have to go with what the mechanic tells you. Um, so, the, so, the, so the American study failed, but the European study continues to run because the Europeans don't have quite the pressures that the, the American sort of patient population are under. And at 14-year follow-up, the last time they published, there was still no uh, significant difference in outcomes for patients who were being screened versus the, those that weren't being screened. However, when we look at the curves on the, on the graphs, you can see them starting to diverge. And it, I, I imagine that soon we will reach significance. And so what that means is that means if you're going to take a 16 to 20 year view on this, it probably is worth screening, but you're not going to see the benefit for that period of time. But of course, it's a big question because if you introduce it, it's going to have a massive cost and logistic ramifications for healthcare system. And this, of course, is looking at a, at a, at a, at a general European population. In that population, certain, other, certain groups that clearly are at risk of prostate cancer, those with family history, those of Afro-Caribbean heritage, um, and I think those patients probably, or that, those populations probably do warrant PSA testing. So I think the question I have for the patient is, do you feel or perceive that you have risks of prostate cancer? If it runs in your family or if you have you know, some ethnic risk factors, I'll be getting a PSA check. Equally, if I was getting any urogenital symptoms at all that were gradual and progressive, the question in the back of my mind is, you know, this is probably benign, but what if? And I'd probably get a PSA test in that setting as well. Not that there's a great deal of evidence either way, but it's like, you know, I'd rather know. I mean, I'll be honest, 
I've had a PSA test. I've got a strong family history of breast cancer in my family and breast cancer in, in, in females can be related to BRCA gene, which is associated with prostate cancer in men. Um, but a lot of my other urology colleagues won't go anywhere near a PSA test. So, you know, even as a, as a, as a professional group, we're undecided as to whether it's something we'd want for ourselves, let alone our patients. It doesn't come, I suppose people listening might just think, well, why wouldn't you just get it done? You know, who cares? Because, you know, it's even if you go privately, it's not a great deal of money. Uh, no. So you might just sort of sit and think, well, you know, even, even if I'm not a particularly high risk group, you know, just for peace of mind, I might just go and get it done anyway. But I suppose the, the, the thing or the issue within the medical community is that it doesn't come without consequences. That, 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 that my understanding is that you can have a lot, it will return a lot of positives um in terms of results which then mean that you then have to go down a whole series of investigations and so on all of which are costly time consuming can cause complications etc etc so is that is that the main issue around the psa that it might it might then start you on a cascade of lots of different investigations and that's absolutely right um and those investigations become increasingly um uh, uh invasive and increasingly risky for the patient and so patients don't, you know, so speaking as a potential patient myself and my colleagues, that's why a lot of us won't go through it. So we're actually kind of scared of what, you know, what might become of a positive result, uh, blood result. Um, equally, we have an obligation to the healthcare system not to bankrupt it by running a whole bunch of men through the system when, you know, if we can't gener- uh, uh, demonstrate that we're benefiting their longevity and productivity to society, which is what the, the NHS is all about. Um, so, it's, so it's a tricky one. So at the moment, the recommendation is that, if a, is that if a patient seeks a PSA test, you do it for them. But we don't solicit patients for PSA testing. That's how it stands. And ironically, there's something about the population that seek PSA testing, that, that they do benefit. But that's not something we see in a population-wide study. So the self, so and, and that's sort of a self-selection bias. There's a whole bunch of statistical reasons why that's the case. But that's why we support patients who seek PSA testing and think they, if we really, really had evidence it was of no benefit at all, they would simply be declined the PSA test. So, so it's like, you know, because, because they've got a family history, for example, they will specifically come and say, look, actually, please, can I get screened? This, um, so it's like they're selecting themselves to come forward yeah. because of the safe top of family history. That's interesting. Yeah, there's something that's driving that that, 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 that means there is an underlying risk factor there that, that contributes to it, yeah. Uh, so the next question, moving on actually to, to, to cancer. So this is a, qu- a question about prostate cancer. So I've just been diagnosed with prostate cancer, although this person doesn't specify what kind of stage that is. Um, no. I've been told I'll need surgery. I'm really worried that this will be the end of my sex life and or I'll end up incontinent. What are the options these days for surgery and how likely am I to get the surgery that I want on the NHS? I suppose this this really sort of this question really touches upon lots and lots of men's anxiety when they I think anything to do with the prostate they suddenly panic and 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 associate anything any interference with the prostate basically becoming either incontinent or I tend to find personally people get more worried about uh, becoming impotent that seems to be the question that you know lots and lots of my my patients they get very anxious and worried about. I mean, there's no doubt that potency becomes more brittle as you get older. 40% of men over 40 have some erectile dysfunction issues. Well, at least that's from the Massachusetts male aging studies. So that's a Massachusetts population is probably relatively comparable to UK population, but maybe not. Um, and there's no doubt that procedures of any description occurring in men as they get older can knock their erectile performance. But particularly when it comes to prostate surgery and, pro- and, and prostate cancer surgery, the problem we have there is that the nerves that supply the, the, the erectile tissues in the penis 
are basically draped around the prostate and they need to be peeled away for us to get to the prostate to remove it. It would be nice to think of these nerves as being something that's easily seen, but they really aren't. They're, they're, they're smaller than hairs. We know they're there, but we can't actually see them with, with the naked eye. So it's about, uh, it's almost like an onion skin. It's about getting the right uh, layer of that onion skin, peeling it away because you know the nerves are in it, but all, equally, you know, there's no prostate or prostate cancer in that layer. And then going to the layers within and taking those out. It's a very, very fine level of detail in the, in the surgery. When I first started training, it wasn't actually considered anything, you know, that wasn't even a consideration. But this is where the, the skill sets come with surgery, this level of functional uh, protection. Um, and the reality is that different surgeons do it, uh, get different results, partly because of the, you know, their training, their experience, partly maybe because of the patient population they're treating. But I think if I was the, the patient, I'd want to know what that surgeon's personal results were like with regards to erectile function. I don't think it's unreasonable. The surgeon sitting there giving you a blanket, you know, uh, data from all UK surgeons. I don't think that's reasonable. I think you want to know what at least the unit's delivering, if not ideally the patient, the, the, the surgeon, his or herself. The surgery was traditionally done via an open incision, whereas it's now moved more towards a keyhole delivery using a robotic platform. The robot doesn't mean a robot is actually doing the operation. It means that the surgeon's doing it, use it with the aid of a robot. And what that delivers is a massive level of accuracy with regards to magnification, because you're using a, a camera for your, your vision rather than your own eyes. And, and, and you can gear the devices, the, the, so your, the hand pieces that are actually moving around inside the patient are an extension of the surgeon's hands. But if you want it, you can change the gearing to make it more sensitive or, or lower the gearing to make it less sensitive. So you have all these extra advantages that come with that. Open surgeons will turn around and say, oh, I can still get the same results uh, you know, using my open technique. And you know, there's some evidence there to support it. But I think overall, the robotic systems are gradually pulling away from the old-fashioned open surgeons. I was going to say, because I, I think that is something that people get slightly anxious about, is the idea of a robot doing the surgery. And actually, I, I saw, I actually went and I had a go and a, a play on one of these things. Uh, and I hadn't, I, even I hadn't realised that it... Well, you know what it is, and actually, it's more kind of almost like a computer, I suppose. It's kind of it's an incredibly advanced piece of technology, really. Um, and 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 it is still the surgeon is still doing the operation. It yeah. is just that they are they are kind of instructing uh, tools, I suppose, and like precisely how to do it. So the, the, the surgeon isn't in inside. It's it's these kind of probes and stuff, but the the surgeon is 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 operating them from just from afar. Yeah, it's, it's almost like the system's like an exoskeleton to the surgeon. It's sort of, the surgeon's still sat in the machine working all these devices. But, um, and I think, again, a lot of my colleagues have gone down the surgical route for their own prostate cancer, seem to prefer the robotic option. So that's where the urologist tends to go. So it's no reason. So if I were a patient, I'd be looking into that thinking that's probably the route I should go. And yes, it should be available on the NHS. And if your local hospital can't provide it, you should ask about it and ask if you could be referred to a centre that can deliver it. It's not unreasonable. Prostate cancer, by and large, is a condition which, um, uh, which gives you wiggle room from a time perspective. It's like every second counts. Take a little bit of time to make your decision. Take a little bit of time to research your, your specialist and your centre. Don't feel pressurised into to committing. The cancer's not going to run away from you in that time frame. There are one or two that, that might, and your surgeon will usually say, you know, this is really aggressive disease. You need to move quickly. Fair enough. But by and large, most of the time, most patients do have the luxury of a few months in which to, to make sure they're comfortable in the environment they're having their surgery, happy with the surgeon, 
happy with the, the platform on which the surgery is going to be delivered. So the final question is, I have been left with terrible incontinence after radical prostate surgery. It's so awful, I'm too scared to leave the house. The nurse has told me to do pelvic floor exercises. Will they really make any difference? What else can I try? So after the prostate's been removed, there's usually, for a lot of patients, a dramatic change in their continence. It's usually quite transient. And so the patient needs to be reassured. Now, if this patient's two years post-surgery, then there's problems. If this is six weeks post-surgery, then this is not unusual. Pelvic floor exercises are actually worth starting before your surgery. There is some evidence that that benefits the, the, the continence outcomes. But yeah, when the prostate's gone, pelvic floor exercises definitely make a difference. Some patients don't do their pelvic floor exercises correctly because they don't understand what exactly it is they're exercising. And basically, it's those muscles that you use to stop your stream. Let's say you're, you're weeing and suddenly you drop your phone in the toilet. The muscles you use to, to stop weeing. Uh, or if you're in the lift and you're trying to hold a fart in, it would be the same kind of muscle group that are doing that. But if you're struggling, usually most centres will have a clinical nurse specialist who can help with this. And they do, um, they could do sort of uh, almost like an ECG of the heart, but of the muscles of the pelvic floor. And it's called biofeedback. And you squeeze various muscle groups and you're watching this screen. And when you squeeze the correct muscle group, you get a nice big sort of spike on the graph. And so you can learn that which muscles you're using. And, and it, that biofeedback is helpful because you just see how powerful those contractions are. And proper pelvic floor exercises, you know, they should be exhausting. You know, you're doing it 10 minutes, three, four times a day, proper 10 minutes. And it, initially, when you start them, you probably won't be able to manage 10 minutes before you, the, that muscle group get tired. I think a lot of people don't do them thoroughly enough. And the continence recovery is usually completed by two years. So what you've got at two years post-surgery is what you're stuck with. And if that is not good enough for you, then there are other options, secondary surgeries that can be undertaken to try and improve the continence from that point. We've usually got an idea at about nine to 12 months, which patients are going to go in that direction. So at that point, we're already starting to gear them up. And so they don't have to put up with their incontinence too long. But we usually like to sort of, usually secondary surgeries aren't really in place until two years because of that statistic of you know of, of that's the point where any further improvement is is marginal okay well look thanks so much that's been really really fascinating that's all we've got time for today but come back next week for part two in the meantime if you want more from richard you can go to thebladderclinic.co.uk and you can find us on spotify apple and google and whilst you're there please leave us a review